We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And now New Galaxy Broadcasting presents Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition, a program addressing the grave challenges to human and citizen rights in America and the rest of the world. How can we, the people of Earth, take back the power and privileges granted to us by God and address so significantly in the Declaration of Independence? Our rights are inalienable, that is, given by God and incapable of being taken away from or given by another. These rights are the basis of liberty, the foundation of all life and happiness. The Coalition of Planetary Empowerment is an organization designed to give its members tools and information to empower them personally, in relationships and in business and employment, but also to give them a voice and the ability to help transform political and corporate governance to support the true needs and desires of people throughout the world. Inalienable and Free focuses on the need for government and corporate business interests to be responsive to the will and desire of their constituents and consumer shareholders. Hey, good morning. This is Johnny Bluestar, host of Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. I'm really happy to say I'm joined today with Don Newsom, owner of BBS Radio, who ha- who is and has been with me since the very beginning on BBS. Very active and always present in overseeing the production of Benalian Bull Free. And we're going to have a great conversation today. Good morning, Don. Good morning. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Great to be with your audience again. And it's great to be here with you, Johnny. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I guess we can say that uh, this whole week has been extremely full of turmoil and changes, not necessarily for the best, but right. certainly uh, to be interesting to be discussed. Well, it's a little, since, yeah. right. sorry, it is. It, it's an amazing, amazing week. Last two weeks have been crazy. Uh, that's why I've been looking forward to the show. <laughs> well, we're actually going to do a, a very interesting thing for me planning for this, you know, we're going to actually discuss sort of solutions at a certain point, solutions regarding the border situation, which is a mess. Yeah, Yeah, that's not perfect. I want to go back to sort of our central core purpose. Inalienable and Free is the voice of the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment, an organization in its very early stages that hopefully will result with a social network type infrastructure that will allow members to address issues in government, promote candidates for election, create initiatives that could eventually be turned into proposals for legislation, approach CEOs and other management and corporations to discuss issues with products and services and the position of corporations vis-a-vis the environment, consumer safety, shareholders' rights, as well as addressing issues involving the media with corporate management reporters and broadcasters. In other words, to give people a voice. The coalition will be mostly involved with topics related to citizen human rights in the broadest sense, including the right to education, health, and prosperity. We believe that these rights, including the primary rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, 
are aligned with the experience of the divine presence, the core spiritual experience alluded to in all major religions and positive nurturing spiritual movements and teachings. As in the oft-quoted phrase from the Declaration, the capstone phrase is probably, we hold these truths to be self-evident, <clears throat> that all men are created equal. <clears throat> Why all this spiritual stuff? Why not focus on creating a legal foundation for citizen human rights? And then try and find a sufficient way to deploy it in a simple secular way based on finding a sufficient majority to take real control of an electoral system. And what is so damn important about the so-called American ideals and the American dream? We're of the opinion that man cut off from a conscious connection from God is like a sailor with a boat cut off from the sea, stuck off in some little rivulet in the middle of a lot of dry land. <clears throat> when you pilot your boat in the big ocean, you have a perspective that exceeds your perspective as an individual pilot. And when you work together with other pilots, also in contact with the same ocean, your field of operation and navigation becomes more complex, but infinitely more fruitful. That same kind of thinking appears in tribal communities like the Native American tribes, which might have a chief who's in charge of the tribe in general, a war chief in charge of war parties, and a medicine man who might operate in conjunction with other medicine people. There was a spiritual component to their decision-making. This is an analogy. What we are looking for in the coalition right now is helping to create paradigms for the United States, an essentially secular government, from the standpoint of, same standpoint of spirit which guided the founding fathers, at least inspirationally, to formulate the sacred ideals and correlative rights of the American Republic, a government that allows for religious and personal freedom. We believe that the right ideals, the right concepts, and the correct manifestation can best come from citizens connected directly to spirit. And probably one of the failings of the American Republic, the American Republic is connected to ideals that were inspired, but never manifested fully through a conscious connection to spirit. But here, several hundred years later, we have a chance to do just that. As Don and I talked about last week, this show will at some point present some new paradigms in regards to borders, as we just mentioned. But as the week progressed, a few major things happened. One was the approval of Trump's travel ban by the Supreme Court of the United States. Let's hear from the a clip from Vice News. That's N64. The Supreme Court issued a closely watched decision today in the final week of its term. The court ruled on Trump v. Hawaii, better known as the case about Trump's infamous travel ban. Now, this isn't the version of the travel ban that we all remember from the airport protests. This is un-American. It's unconstitutional. This revision, version three, has been in place with very little fanfare since December when the justices let it go into effect pending today's ruling. The issues in the case, does the president have the authority to ban people from specific countries from entering the United States? And is the ban a product of religious discrimination? In a five to four decision along ideological lines, the court upheld this version of the ban. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that it was well within the president's authority to issue an executive order barring people from five Muslim-majority countries, plus North Korea and Venezuela, from entering the United States. It's a huge statement on presidential power. So the Supreme Court ruling was a tremendous victory for this country and for the Constitution. The challenge, brought by the state of Hawaii, several individuals, and a Muslim advocacy group, pointed to President Trump's retweets and campaign promises specifically to bar Muslims from entering the United States as a reason why the ban was unconstitutional. Remember this? Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown 
of Muslims entering the United States. Chief Justice Roberts addressed that and said that it wasn't the court's job to denounce the president's statements and that he was only concerned with whether American security was a plausible justification. The majority decided it was. The justices also said that since the ban allows exceptions and waivers, that was crucial to deciding that it was constructed based on legitimate national security interests and holes in the overseas vetting process. But the ruling could still leave open some avenues to challenge the ban's scope. This is supposed to be an emergency provision of the immigration law. The majority takes it to be temporary, in part because previous orders issued by other presidents have been temporary. So one thing that's open to the challengers is to press for how long can this remain on the books. Now, both the majority and the minority considered whether this case resembled Korematsu versus the United States. That's the World War II-era decision that said it was constitutional to hold Japanese-Americans in internment camps. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote that the majority deploys the same dangerous logic in the name of a superficial claim of national security, as the court did in that shameful decision. The majority tried to make sure people didn't tie the two cases together. Roberts wrote that Korematsu was morally repugnant and gravely wrong, but had nothing to do with the travel ban. It's also worth noting Justice Kennedy's warning. While he agreed with the decision, he wrote that, quote, the very fact that an official may have broad discretion, discretion free from judicial scrutiny, makes it all the more imperative for him or her to adhere to the Constitution and to its meaning and its promise. He added that an anxious world needs that commitment. A message pretty clearly intended for the president of the United States. Well, you're dealing with Libya, Syria, Iran, Yemen, and Somalia, two Muslim countries, two non-Muslim countries, Venezuela and North Korea. There ain't many people coming here from North Korea, and as I've been told, not many from Venezuela either. In terms of Syria, you know we're involved with Syria uh, militarily at time from time to time. Iran, Yemen is. Uh, a country that is being attacked with our help uh, by Saudi Arabia. And so Libya and Somalia, we have had presences or will have presence there. So you have this continual, you have this sort of strange combination of things, which are mostly Muslim countries. And um, the reasons for accepting the ban revolved around the ignoring of Trump's earlier prejudicial marks against, uh, remarks against Muslims, including the original ban on all Muslims entering the country and the acceptance of his need for security. Well, Sonia Sotomayor, the um, Supreme Court Justice, gave a dissenting opinion. And I'll give you uh, some examples of what she, she, she said. She was quoting from one famous um, case called Epperson versus Arkansas, and it, which said the state may not adopt programs or practices which aid or oppose any religion. This prohibition is absolute in regards to the current Supreme Court decision supporting the ban, she says, insofar as the court has dissented from, quote, that clear co- command. This court has long acknowledged that governmental actions that favor one religion inevitably foster the hate and disrespect and even contempt of those who, contra- who have contrary beliefs. Another point here that I think is important uh, that she's concerned about was whether or not there was a real situ- a real situation with these people. We already had a um, 
a very strong national security type of protocol. And um, she, she said the government remains wholly unable to articulate any credible national security interest that would go unaddressed by the current statute, statutory scheme absent the proclamation. And I don't think, Don, that there's a, that, that any of these countries, in terms of somebody coming here from those countries, uh, really has been much of a problem in terms of terrorism. Um, I would disagree. I think really? I think Europe. I think if we look around the world and we see what's going on because of the open borders and Soros's money, and I do believe that because there was murders and death, they brought up mem- many meetings many meetings throughout Europe by several people. They were all murdered. They all started talking about open borders in the early 2000s. And uh, they were wiped away. And it has continued. Uh, only it's become now more open. Uh, and, and to me, um, I see a lot of money behind this. And again, the majority, even though in the, uh, what you were saying earlier. You know, I, no, I, I'm talking about in the United States. I don't think there's been a single situation where someone has come from these specific countries and uh, caught, had a, had some kind of terrorist attack. I think, well, when you're talking these, these uh, paid provocateurs and, 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 and terrorist attacks that we're getting right now, I think most of that in almost, almost every case would be paid provocateurs. I've seen the ads there's many of them. They run about $18, $20 an hour or more, and you can start getting paid to be a provocateur. Um, and well, well, I'm sorry. I don't really know what you mean by a provocateur in this context. I'm talking about an actual event where people are killed. Right, no, I, I, I believe that, um, well, you'd have to go a little smaller scale to the rapes, to the crime sprees, uh, to um, some of the by people of these particular countries in the United States, these are uh, you know from those news reports. A lot of this these problems have been caused by illegal immigrants. You know? Well, I I don't believe that there's been one situation from these specific countries that where a terrorist came into the United States from that country, not someone who's lived here for a long time. I think there has been someone from Iraq or something, a few people maybe, right. but not for, I don't even think from these specific countries. Well, from the ones you, you know, again, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. I don't know if we, do we even get stats on exactly where these uh, people are coming in from? I mean, we try to, but it's a little difficult because they're illegal. They're not really on the books. It's hard to say. Well, I think that the terrorist attacks we're talking about are ones that are quite public. You know, they're running cars into people. They're shooting people up. Right. And, and uh, I, I don't think, you, you know, but if you talk about Saudi Arabia, which we've given mil- billions of dollars to for arms, they have a strong uh, backdrop of, of um, supporting terrorism in different countries. I agree. I agree. And our support of them is just, to me, ridiculous. I totally agree with you. So uh, so anyway, um, I don't think that 
I, I do think this is basically a religious band, but I don't think it's it's really about... Um, do religions about, mix? Can they mix? That's another question. Can they mix? Can, of course. Can all religions live together in harmony and peace? Most religions have at one point or another, as well as being antagonistic to each other. Right, right, right. Because I don't think it's a matter of religion. It's a matter of one's true heart, so to speak. I mean, the Moors and the Moorish and the Jews got together. I wish that were true. I'm sorry. I said, I wish that were true. It Uh, was true. I mean, I think it's more a matter of uh, religious and state practices uh, than our heart. In other words, many of these states and and the people behind them feel they have a right to be here uh, and they follow the dictates of the money behind them. The people behind them say, yeah, you do have a right to be there, even though you don't. Um, I was talking about historically. Many religions have worked together sometimes, and sometimes they are at war with each other. Right. I would, yes, I would agree with that. But I think it's pretty difficult in many respects to mix religions when, and let me and let me uh, clarify that because this is what I wanted to say afterwards, when those policies are part of the state. In other words, mixing state and religion. And we've done that here. This is where I feel Trump's way off base way way off base because he's you know making america all about christianity and 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 kind of you know bringing that into the mainstay of the political arena and i feel right and i feel that's wrong and that's what's really hurting this entire situation and again because of religious uh uh doctrines and ideologies so trump you know, he isn't um, he isn't the kind of person, uh, I think, who's going to open his doors to a lot of different religious flavors like I would. Maybe you would. And that's sad. Well, I, I think I don't think that he himself, if, for someone who has just negotiated the, one of the biggest arms deals in the world with Saudi Arabia and danced with these people. Right. You know, remember right. the dance with the swords, the sword dance. I don't think he personally. Uh, is against Muslims. I think he uses that hatred of Muslims among his base to to keep them going. He made some promises to them, and I think this is part of his his scheme for bond. His scheme is based on bonding people together because of hate. I don't know. See, I'm a I'm more of a uh, someone who sides with Trump. See, I, I don't feel that. I don't see it. And I'm voracious. You know, when I go through the news and the clips, I'm voracious. I spend four to eight hours a day going through news, reading the news all over the globe. Have since, oh, 1999. I mean, voracious. And I've never felt that, Johnny. I don't, I don't feel that. I don't you don't feel it. what? That he's, that he's, sort, of a, uh, he's sort of an that outsider he's to what he's doing? hate trying to be divisive and well and, think of the things he said about muslims about you know about latinos about all kinds of people he's just it's like a you I could actually i've never you know i've seen the media spin a lot of what he stated but i've never actually heard him state anything to me in that respect that was um out of line 
Yeah. Well, I think you should just go on YouTube <laughs> and you can find a lot of it. I've I had a lot of, I've, I've actually sure broadcast enough. a lot of it in our, in our programs. But I, yeah, I, I do think that he is basically, you know, taking advantages of people's prejudices and turning against all kinds of people. Oh, no, it might seem like that, but I don't think that's the man he is. I think he's trying to bring the United States back to some semblance or resemblance to what it was, uh, let's say, during the Reagan era. Um, he, in other words, he's trying to bring back some form of, of um, national policies that will actually protect this country, its citizens, its trade, its finance and commerce. Uh, and he's quite really? the negotiator. I do, yeah. Yeah, I really well, do. That's interesting. And because, okay. you know, when I look on the global stage and I see all this happening in the last week or two, come on. I mean, if people, oh, it's Trump. Oh, he's Trump doing that. Trump's doing this. Then I think, okay, why did it ramp up so fast? And this is continuously like this. I'm just giving an example. The most recent one, it ramps up so fast and they come against him and form uh, coalitions against him, let's say. Um, and, and it comes right out of the blues. And, and then it dominates the mainstream media, and then everybody jumps onto the bandwagon. They say that's the way it is. He's pulling not, out of major, gigantically major agreements that dozens of countries have come together in and just immediately destroying those Right. Those thank, thank heavens. Thank heavens, in my opinion. That he's renegotiating these trade deals. I, I, I believe him. When I, well, I'm not so much talking about the trade deals. Well, it always comes down to the finance and the commerce. It it always comes down to the money, and those are very big issues, and they and they will permeate the other issues. Don't you think? When you look at look at an action like what Sessions just did, which is pulling children away from their parents, and and not even not even documenting carefully where they were, or if they're documenting, not releasing. Now, that who do we believe on that score, though? Who do we believe? Because there's well, one I believe side the, I believe the courts, and I believe that multiple people have gone in and, and watched things and and looked at what what they're doing. Right. Uh, the pictures are extraordinary. Right, and many of those pictures they say were from prior administrations, uh, the Obama and the Clinton era. No. No, that's not possible. Uh, now, some, you know, there might be a, a couple states. I'm talking about pictures of living senators going there and banging on the doors trying to get in or pe people in the news actually getting into these places right now. Right. No, I understand. And, I, and I've and i watched some of those reports. But I think, again, that's part of past administration issues that are trying to be cleared up now. They didn't separate children. Uh, oh, I believe they did. I think they separated them. I think it was policy. I think Clinton and Obama decided to continue those policies. And I think that. But see, that's the thing about the news. I mean, we're kind of like on a tangent here because. What's the truth and what isn't? There's been so many lies out there. We almost have to follow our hearts in some of this and read well, between I, the I lines. I think I'm following my heart and saying that although there was the, these rules, the potential for doing it, these people did not do it. 2,500 people that we know of 
uh, were, were separated. I mean, right. 2,500 pa- children. Pa- past policies that now are trying to be renegotiated. And I think he's having a tough time renegotiating it because there's so well, much I money. Wish I, had your, I wish I had your faith, man. I, I That's wonderful. I absolutely. I think we're heading in the right direction now. And, and I truly would like to see this, you know, I mean, uh, um, well, I, I shouldn't say that because I'm stepping a little bit out of bounds there. But we are heading well, you, in a better a direction. Nice Let's say a better direction. A better. A, I, I, I really honestly think that most of our civil liberties are being taken away. I think our 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 minorities are all being attacked. I think that um, the the man is um, has no real no real belief in law and order, and I think he actually is a you know, he's, uh, he's, why would he, when, when there's, uh, like in Charlottesville, when there's uh, this hate, hate group obviously out there out front, why, why wouldn't he say anything? Why would he compare, say, well, there's some good people on both sides when we're talking about neo Nazis? I don't get it. Well, you know, hey, some of the things he says are profoundly stupid. Uh, I, I hear you. I mean, I've noticed that he'll say one thing, flip another, and I don't know often enough where he's coming from. Uh, Really, that's the truth. We'll go out of Syria. We'll attack Syria. We'll leave Syria. I I mean. He leaves you guessing. (laughs) He does leave you guessing every now and again. Well, Don, I'm going to continue on here for a minute because we got a lot of stuff that we do agree with that we need to cover, I guess. Um. I want to say about citizenship in a in a foreign in a sovereign country is primarily granted automatically if you're born in a country, and visitors, potential residents, and immigrants applying for citizenship go through a certain procedure. Uh, citizens have special rights. For instance, a citizen is automatically granted the right to Social Security and Medicare. And although non-citizens and residents may be eligible at least for some medical attention and financial relief. It could be a different, often more cumbersome and more risky process. But given the equality phrase that all men are created equal, does being a citizen of a sovereign nation preclude other residents and immigrants in various statuses from having certain basic rights? And when they come to the border, shouldn't they retain those basic rights? So I, I'm going to say there's three types of identity. There's personal identity, there's citizenship, which is being having a sovereign nation that you belong to. And there's a planetary uh, identification, which is basically that everything we do in a way can affect everyone else. And we should be aware of and concerned about the rights, privileges, and the responsibilities of other people, um, you know, even if we can't help them directly. Right. Right. You know, there's a point there. It's a good point. I mean, we are global citizens. And to to be restricted on one part of the globe versus another, uh, yeah, it's it's a little harsh. And I hope one day we can solve that problem. I truly well, we're going to present a we're going to try to present uh, a way of doing that. All right. And um, yeah, that's really the bottom line, isn't it? That's one of the biggest issues of our day, and it's been one of the biggest issues throughout. Uh, you know, one empire after another, actually. That's been a, a primary issue. If, if if we can solve it, hey, Nobel Peace Prize coming. 
<laughs> All right. I want to point out that, you know, there has been this, um, this travel ban. Uh, that came around the same time that all these children were being separated from their parents. And so because of that, both of these things came into the forefront of the news cycle at the, uh, basically the same time. And um, so I want to point out that when, when a c citizens come, come in, they're at the border. Yeah, that's a real border, but they're either in or out. But when they petitioned the petition our government or any other government to come in, you know, come as an immigrant, uh, even if they're not there, they're either going to go in and, or go out, or you know, give a temporary trial right, period. Right. So that that's kind of a virtual border. Right. So I think that what we're trying to talk about is is um, both kinds of uh, borders and how to deal with them. So. Uh, in our discussion that we're going to have, uh, we'll be talking about border empowerment centers or communities, which is an imaginative solution to the problem of monitoring borders. But this will apply both to the physical and virtual borders. We'll be talking about cooperative trade zones, a rather large idea, which appears to me a necessity in order to affect empowerment centers. There needs to be a constructive economic paradigm to put things in perspective. So let's talk about uh, economics. In my view, there's no such thing as pure socialism and pure capitalism. The United States is obviously a blend of both systems, with Social Security and Medicare being the most obvious. But we also have like uh, universities that are some of, some of them are public, uh, K-12 education, public libraries, physical infrastructure, water, sewer systems, public parks, public police forces. Then there's some things that I don't really feel comfortable with, like privatizing jails. Um, they used to be all basically public. and um, But basically, I think in a certain sense, theoretically, we have a nice blend. What do you think of that? Um, well, what was the question? <laughs> that most countries have a blend of socialism and capitalism. Yeah, yeah, in a loose sense of the word, sure, yeah. So, when you talk about capitalism, there's a subcategory called, sometimes pejoratively called predatory capitalism. And I, I think often when people are talking about capitalism, they're really talking about, in, in, a, in a more fair way, countries competing with one another. Uh, but they're not using, you know, bad tactics. Right. They're not playing the game in a bad way. Right. But I think that, um, so that's similar to teams in a sports, sports game competing with one another, but willing to pay fair play fair and congratulate, congratulate anyone who wins. Right. So I think those two polls um, are really not the answer. I think what we need is something I would call cooperative capitalism. Yeah, that might look like putting a ceiling or a floor, in other words, on the amount of money somebody can actually uh, make. How much wealth can you uh, hoard? Um, and I and and believe me, I know this. It sounds a little weird. And my brother and I were discussing that a while back. And I was thought you shouldn't put a limit on somebody's 
ability to create wealth. That just doesn't make sense because that person is going after it and deserves it. And I've always believed that. But I've come to believe with the kind of money that's out there in these families passing it along and, and the illegal means with which they obtain greater and greater amounts of money at the expense of everybody else, uh, I think we should consider some form of a floor or ceiling on the amount of money a person can actually have assets. Well, you know, property, I, in this money. in this particular paradigm, it's not so much that we're looking at a at a, at a floor. I mean, that may happen, but the the point is that let me describe this in cooperative capitalism. Predatory capitalism, though, you know, when you put some sort of limits on that, that might be the beginning of preventing that sort of predatory. Well, I'm not I'm not saying that's a bad idea, but. What I'm focusing on is when two people, when co certain companies, certain people, certain countries, that they look at each other as being part of the same team. They're all interested in everybody's prosperity, right. not putting any necessary limits on it, except ones that actually sort of exist uh, just by nature of what they're doing. But they basically are loving thy neighbors thyself, and so in this way, their 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 attitude is different because they're saying, well. It's like you and me getting together in a certain way. Like we get together and we decide to uh, open a lemonade stand or whatever it is. And, you know, we're, we're friends. So uh, we're not trying to get more money from each other, but we're collectively trying to make as much money as we can, right? Right, right. So th that's a different attitude. It that, is. That's putting us all in the same planet as, as, as this is our playing field as the planet, not just our country, but we are – you know, we're separated both as individuals, as citizens, and we're, we're separated in terms of uh, sort of teams. But these are teams that care about each other. And it, it, we're not looking for win-loss things. We're looking for win-win things. Yeah, we That's might want to consider we might want to consider those current, uh, current uh, kind of um, um, relationships, more open relationships with those borders around us and countries around us and then feel it out and see how it goes and then spread those kind of values. But we can't do it globally because everybody doesn't have that heart. People just, you know, it'd be great to think they are all love thy neighbor people, but unfortunately the state uh, ideologies in many of these countries um, you know, have a mix of, again, religion with their state or or cultures uh, in their state that, you know, would be uh, very destructive or harmful to other countries, cultures, people and their and their state. So I don't think it's possible to do this now. Yeah, it's I wasn't not. really it's I not. wasn't really trying Small to scale. Would I be was great. saying, OK, so I'm trying to identify the problem, really. The problem is that we're we compete. I mean, when you're competing with each other and you have nuclear weapons that can dis virtually destroy the world, either by mistake or by any kind of real, right. real serious exchange. And then you're doing the same thing with money. Right. You're, you're, you're trying to get the, all the marbles on your You're trying to get all the marbles on your table with this petrodollars. Or going to <laughs> the, the, the most. You know, you know, <laughs> yeah. You want to get it on your side and uh that's again, that's or you're going to you, you'll you print more money. So you'll change the the uh, rate of inflation and you'll right. affect another cur country's cu it's currency. Predatory. Right, right. 
So it's 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 like it's manipulated. stupid, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's when it comes down to it, how does it help? It helps certain number of corporations and a certain number right. of people, but right. it, it drives everything to that one percent situation. Right, and now it doesn't have to. I don't think capitalism has to work that way. I think it is working that way currently because of the corruption and 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 you know and and particularly corruption by government. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think no, that's why I'm calling it cooperative yeah, capitalism. Yeah, yeah. I well, don't believe yeah, I don't believe word. that the answer is to give it all, give everything to the state. Right. And then the state is is sort of a separate entity than from the people. Right. And uh, which is what really has happened in what we would not normally call now. You know, these are communist countries. They're not really. They're really dictatorships. Well, the United Nations was a good idea. Uh, it was a good idea, but when you got all those nations together and you stuck a little money in the mix, look what happened. And it continues to happen, you know, with one, uh, say, coalition or another. It just does. It uh, it's it's hard to get around. Um, it's corruption at the top. It's corruption at the top. I, you know, it's kind of like you and I were talking in the past. I always thought a good idea was yes, have a global council. Global council would be great, but it would be an arbitration council, and uh, that council um, would be there in case countries get into you know some sort of uh, a snit with each other, and they help arbitrate and resolve that. But I don't think that this global council should uh, interfere with local and regional or well local politics. Oh, I think we might have a caller. I'll be right back. All right, Johnny, we do have Lynn Mystic Healer with us on line one. Terrific. Let's speak to her. Hey. Hi, Lynn. This trip, yes, hello, hello. Thank you for what you're doing. Um, I just wanted to mention, I wondered um, when you're talking about capitalism and capital, um, you know, socialist, um, cooperative capitalism mix and what have you, um, and how about... Um, Taxing Wall Street transactions. Why aren't the banks being taxed? I don't really understand why every single millisecond of Wall Street um, tra transactions aren't being taxed, these bankers. And I also um, know that when people know better, they do better. And um, you talk about um, in Michael Moore's movie, everyone, where to invade next. They go through all these different ways that they were able to get the bankers out of their politics in um, Iceland. And they also show a section on your uh, cap on free trade, which is phenomenal, um, it, and how well it works for the company and the people involved. And um, anyway, it goes on into all kinds of um, restorative justice movements and, um, you know, drug policies out of Portugal that are really working, j jobs, not jails kind of programs. Anyway, I just know that all these government policies could really help bring our USA together with a uh, new kind of focus, intentional focus that could really help us unite our USA. So thank you. So everyone can be inalienable and free. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Len. That's great. Well, I guess, Don, let's take a, let's take a little bit of a, of a break now. 
And um, uh, let's it. let's play M25, M26, and C7. Zave Nathan came here from France, seeking work as an actor and musician in Hollywood. Now he and his wife, Bonnie Blazak, write unusual, socially impactful songs. Here, Threshold Radio shows Zave Nathan and Bonnie Blazak awakened songwriters and the controversial two-part show, Who's Minding the Planet? Find those shows in our ThresholdRadio.com archives as well as SoundCloud and YouTube. And here's a beautiful ballad by Zave Music called Believe. Stay strong and keep loving our hearts And we mustn't forsake forget who we are As our future and past are written in the stars Every day of our life we should pray to the sky We are one, we are left Dr. Hugo Rodier is a medical doctor trained in nutritional medicine with a special interest in intestinal disorders. You may schedule a consult via Skype or telephone by calling 801-898-3317 or via email by accessing his website, hugorodier.com, H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com. No insurance accepted, but a form is available to apply for reimbursement from your insurance except for Medicare. Dr. Rodier speaks English, French, and Spanish. Well, I can understand that. I don't like them either. We are back, folks. All right. Well, uh, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about, um, well, some of the effects of the of the, these new trade policies that we we, we were talking about, a little, little thing about the trade wars. Let's talk about a couple of things related to them. Let's play uh, N66. We want to make it easier for businesses to create more jobs and more factories in the United States. And you're a great example of it. That you're a great example of it. That was just last year at the White House. The president holding up a quintessential American brand, motorcycle maker Harley Davidson, as just the type of company he wants to help. Well, check your inbox, Mr. President. Harley Davidson now announcing it plans to move some operation out of the U.S. because of the tariffs. So is this America First Trade policy going exactly as planned? Joining me right now, CNN correspondent Allison Kosick with, with much more on this. Allison, what is Harley-Davidson doing? Okay, so in this SEC filing from today, we're learning about what Harley-Davidson is doing. Uh, it is going ahead and shifting production of its motorcycles that makes for European customers, literally moving it out of the United States and setting up shop overseas to avoid the tariff and ultimately uh, save money and customers. Uh, now, we learned that Harley-Davidson 
Robinson is making this drastic move to literally hold on to its second biggest sales market, and that's Europe. And this is after the EU raised tariffs from 6% to 31% on motorcycles that are exported from the U.S. Now, Harley says the tariff raises the price by about $2,200 on every motorcycle that's sold in Europe. So that really cuts its competitive strength in Europe if their motorcycles are more than what's already on the market. So you look at the security filing, Harley-Davidson said this. It said it believes that the tremendous cost increase, if it's passed on to its dealers and retail customers, it would wind up having an immediate and lasting detrimental impact to its business in the region. So instead of raising prices, which Harley says it's not going to do, the company has decided, you know what? We're better off over the next 18 months, literally moving our production facilities of the motorcycles to avoid the tariffs. The way Harley sees it, Europe is a critical market for the company. You look at last year, it did 15% of its business there, 40,000 motorcycles were, were sold. So for now, Harley is basically going to eat the higher tariff cost. The company says it's going to take a hit of $30 million to $45 million for the rest of the year. And if you look at the full year, the impact could be as high as $100 million. So those kinds of losses, Kate, are expected to eat into profit for the company. It is the reason we are seeing shares of Harley-Davidson right now tanking 5% wow. because they're going to be struggling to literally move that facility and try and, and, and pay for this tax uh, that's going to be placed on their motorcycles overseas. Well, what do you think of that situation as a result of these retaliatory trade war situations? I think we're going to see more of that. I think there's big negotiations going on with these multinational corporations and a lot of the CEOs that are in bed with many of these corporations. I think it's a negotiation. I think it's going to continue to ramp up until these issues are solved. And this is just uh, one of the... Um, you know, uh, issues we're going to have to deal with, probably with several more uh, corporations that are international in scope. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're, I think the uh, retaliation from Ottawa is like, is, is like an, an attempt at an equal retaliation of $21 billion. Right, right. Well, here's another uh, what I thought was interesting. Um, this is an article on CNN Money, actually. It's the title of the article was U.S. Trade War Will split in, in, Spill into Other Asian Economies. Just read it. It's fairly short. A worsening tit-for-tat would be bad news for export powerhouses such as Taiwan, South Korea, and Malaysia, which sell goods to China that are used to make products exported to the United States from automobiles to consumer electronics. These are industries that require technologies that come from many different directions, says Ray Raymond Sang, a Shanghai-based partner, consultant, Bain and company. The supply chain is very complex. This interwoven trade is essential to regional economies. Asia is an export-dependent region, and for many economies, exports are an engine for growth. No doubt about it, if this thing accelerates, it will have a material impact in the region, particularly on Taiwan. Tech components such as computer chips are among the products which are most vulnerable to trade turmoil. That would put the island of Taiwan in a precarious position. The U.S.-China fight intensifies. Taiwan is a big supplier of components to mainland China, where they are used to make smartphones and other electronic devices, which are shipped for sale in the United States. In total, these exports make up almost 2% of Taiwan's gross domestic product according to research firm, 
firm capital economics. Taiwan stands to lose the most in the trade war, said senior Asia economist Gareth Leather. If demand falls for Chinese smartphones, demand for Taiwanese components will suffer too. So that's just another consequence. I mean, we're dealing with all of Europe, with Canada, Mexico, and China. That's a lot of countries, right? And then there, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of spinoffs from that. Is it so clear that when you do something like this, that you're not sort of, can you really predict what's going to happen? Well, you know, the bottom line with the with the with these trade deals, I think, is just to preface all this, is that you know these countries feel because of our um, you know dominance with the dollar that it's an unfair situation. And here's Trump trying to create fair trade deals with these countries who believe that we've had an unfair advantage for a long, long time. I think that's kind of the issue you're dealing with. Some people want to right those wrongs where others just want to settle the playing field. So, you know, you're dealing with, you know, maybe more than two camps on that score. But, right. uh, yeah, right. yeah. It, well, it, I think the I I just um, I don't think what happened at the that G G seven summit was pretty good. I don't think it was good. I don't think the things that Trump said about uh, the you know the head of Canada were really very good things. Do you? Well, you, Trudeau, you have to call Trudeau, somebody, I never you liked have to call him a weak man. Well, I don't like Trudeau him. at all. I never liked his family. In 1977, when we moved to Can from Canada to the U.S., the main reason my family left because it was Trudeau, you know, the older Trudeau and the new Democrat Republican. And they wanted to get out of there as fast as they could because the corruption was so high and so extreme in the business world. And that's that what they were in. They decided to get out of there. Now, as is Justin any better? Well, look, what happened after he and Trump spoke? They had, you know, not very much to say. You know, they, they talked a little bit together. But it seems like Trump might have slighted him or snubbed him just a bit. You know, really didn't open up to him as much as he maybe should have initially. And, and then that later led to Justin snubbing Trump. Now I don't know who did it first. I think I think if if you were to put those two in in a room, they would probably get along great. But once they left that room, they're going to tote their party lines because that's what they think they're getting paid to do. Tough for me. I don't know if there's real animosity between them. Although if I were to you know say hey. Um, yeah, are they both principled and charactered individuals? You know, I would say that Trump holds himself has more character, more honor, and more uh, and more uh, integrity than Justin by far, by far, by far, by far. But that's my opinion. I haven't been analyzing a lot of Canadian politics lately because I just think the Trudeau family uh, is rotten to the core to the very fabric of their family. But that's my thoughts because of my upbringing and, you know, where I corralled my mind, let's say.
Well, I uh, I have no comment about Trudeau because I really don't know anything about him. I just think that Trump has a history of really grievously insulting people. Uh, and I don't know even if you dislike a person who's on the, you know, who's the head of the country that you should really approach it that way. I, I think it was more that uh, Trump and they were, were, you know, in that meeting and that uh, from what I understood reading maybe alternative reports was they got along they got along famously before and then after they all left to their own respective countries again uh trudeau made an about face and uh, snubbed the president and that's in my opinion likely true considering what i feel and understand of justin i think he i think he instigated that and it was and I think Trump probably felt, hey, this, you know, we were we got along great. And then the next moment, Justin spitting in his face, basically. Uh, and same way, I think, with some of the other leaders of a couple of the other countries did exactly the same thing. You know, oh, it was a great meeting. Trump thought it was great. Next, they turn around and they they spit in the face of the president just to create this global antagonism. Um, there's a lot of money. There's so much money uh, moving and, and the big finances that run the world, you know, they have a certain open border desire and for their own machinations, don't think it's for the love of the people, you'd be mistaken. So because of their own machinations, you know, these things are starting to ensue. Um, and how are you going to change that? I mean, if, if, if let's say 80% or 60% of the world's money the world's money doesn't like you and wants to move in this direction and wants to create a, a global chaotic situation that they can undermine at every turn and 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 play with um well where was i going with this basically you know i'll leave it at that i'll just leave it at that cuz i i'd start to dribble on that <laughs> well, we're gonna, we're gonna, we'll take a break for a little while for C2 and C11, a little bit of uh, you got it. a little bit of a break, and then we're going to go into solutions. You got it. My company, New Galaxy Enterprises, is a California corporation specializing in the creation of media and promotional content. We are focused on original, innovative projects that are good for humanity. These projects could be nonfiction books or novels, fictional screenplays or documentary content, websites and website content, commercial advertising content for print, audio or video products on the internet, television or radio, musical scores for advertising, television or film, video, audio editing, etc. We want to promote products and projects that support the environment, encourage a healthy experience in living, developing, nurturing and useful technology and offering platforms for positive, socially constructive entertainment or informative, transformative media. Our experience in creating a variety of products like this is rather vast and we offer client-based and collaborative products as well as the opportunity of active investors to join us in the creation and promotion of proprietary products, some of which are in latter stages of development. For more information, go to www.newgalaxyenterprises.com Dot com. That's www.newgalaxyenterprises.com. If you're interested in talking to us, just fill out the contact sheet and we will get back with you.
This is Johnny Blue Star, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. Initially, I wanted to be a playwright, but once in college, I fell in love with movies and have been writing my own and for clients for many years. No, I'm not entrenched in Hollywood. But I think if you look at my samples, you can determine if I can capture the drama and power of your idea. I'm up to refining your work to professional quality. I've worked on dramatic films, comedy, science fiction, documentaries, and even musicals. I have several books published now that are the beginning of book and film franchises. To learn more about New Galaxy, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.newgalaxyenterprises.com and fill out the contact form. All right. <laughs> well, imagine that businesses and government actually wanted to cooperate with each other. The whole world wasn't hanging under the threat of mutually assured technology, a mutually assured destruction by one of the most wasteful and dangerous technologies ever created. There would be an entirely different attitude in a form of planning desirous of creating the maximum benefit for consumers and businesses worldwide, but also for the entire human family as citizens of planet Earth. So events of the southern border have now become explosive, primarily because of the outrage stirred by the separation of at least 2,500 children from their families. Some administration, administrators of this policy are being hounded by their opponents and have had trouble eating casually in some restaurants. Whether this type of approach is right or wrong, the forcible separation of children from their parents with the possibility that they will lose their children forever is a crime deeper than that could be simply defined as, by, as such by secular law. Still, the magnitude of people taking perilous journeys with, with or without children, fleeing possible murder, continual theft of property, joblessness, even human trafficking, and other forms of criminality, and then subjected to handcuffs and imprisonment, does not meet my criteria for loving my neighbor. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I hear that's you. what I see right now. I see something really. That's what everybody sees, though. That's what everybody wants you to see. That's what the money, that open border society, and a lot of this money. I, I mean, honestly, you don't really think that 25, the government has said 2,500 people, children are, are were taken. That's not something that uh, that someone else said. They were taken, and they can't. They've only restored five hundred of them. They're under a court order now. They haven't denied that they they've done that. Do you think they have done? You know, I again, I think a lot of these policies have been uh, have been the precedence has been set in earlier administrations, and now the negotiations have started to solve that problem. And it's a tough, tough, tough one, and that both sides are coming at it. In, in very opportunistic ways. He said, I ways. can't do anything. It was the law. I can't do its executive order. And then in a few days later, when the... Well, when true. Every- Again, Trump keeps everybody guessing. And I think that also... And I, I well, hate I, to condone I lies. I hate to condone I would lies. Say, but you say that's a lie? Right. I like say I, that they, didn't, they did it on purpose. I hate to condone lies. I do. But he's in a tough spot, and he needs tough spot about uh, taking twenty five hundred children from people coming largely I, for asylum. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I, I, I don't think you have to his, separate their I children and and yeah, say I don't believe that's his policies. I honestly don't believe those are you his policies. You don't think it's his policies? No, 
I don't. Uh, you really, okay, well, I think it's a matter of you just taking a look or both of us taking a look and doing more research. Right. I think these are policies from past administrations that are being now negotiated. Everything that, that I know tool in his suggests book. that they, are, they were possible policies, but they were not effective. I think they were very effective back then, and they were hushed up by the political establishment in an extreme degree. How do you how do you know that? Well, some of the reports that I'd read from various media services, just like you'd get your information from, uh, espoused that, espoused exactly that. Well, I'd like to see some of yours. (laughs) Uh, Mine are all over the news. Right. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't buy into mainstream media at all. I think they're, they're, they are like Trump says, completely fake news. They make it up as they go and they twist everything and they are the enemy of the people. I think they are three, there are 300, um, marches going on today in cities throughout the United States. Right. And you see all the Craigslist ads and the other ads and they've increased the rate at which they're paying provocateurs now. They went from 13, 15, 18 to 20 with accommodations and lunch and everything else. Do you get heck? It's so much money. It's what it's above minimum wage in such large degree. I, I, I can't believe there's not more people uh, jumping into these. Uh, you honestly think that the people I instance, think in very I large part, yes, City, I think in very large part, you get a few pervade paid provocateurs enough of them and they create like maxine waters said a crowd and then we push back i think it's exactly fascinating man i I am so glad to be talking to you (laughs) Uh, i'm going to continue on here uh the southern border of the united states is not the only border problem in the world there's an obvious polarization between those who will who wish to welcome the refugees in so many different countries and those whose solution is Spartan and indifferent, often based on a feeling of nationalistic and ethnic exceptionalism. Considering the reality of protecting borders, is there some kind of a different paradigm that could work? The problem at our southern border grew simultaneously with the escalating trade trade tensions, as mentioned. Um, it appears that uh, we now have this trade war, as we've discussed, between all these different countries, the inability of countries to distinguish between their obligation to protect their true sovereign identity and provide for their citizens accordingly, and the need to see the validity to exercise responsibility over events outside their country, which demand their attention and responsiveness. From a truly spiritual perspective, no country is an island. No country stands alone. That's why that this is the point where, as Americans, Mexicans, or any other kind of na- nationality, our planetary citizen citizenship must kick in. Refugees come in all sizes, and their efforts often end in chaos and pain. And yes, we want to end end this, but not in the wrong way. The answer is not capitulation to some kind of borderless world engineered and controlled by a ruthless dictatorial central government but rather to respond to a higher calling for a way of looking at other countries and governments with respect for their different identities and governments, different identities, but also with respect for their rights to prosperity and happiness. Trade wars as we experience now is because of a polarizing psychology which emphasizes insulated and selfish competition as a result of countries' short-sightedness and looking at the greater advantage of utilizing cooperative capitalism to maximize their collective prosperity. 
So our promise today, Don, was to lay down a developing paradigm that could create better sure. results economically for all countries. I I actually like that idea. I think I think you can I you and I could hammer this out, and I got a couple ideas. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, let's go for it. Let's uh, we'll we'll go on with mine in a minute. You, why don't you give me hit me with some of yours? Well, I think there's a couple ways. Like I was saying, first, we could we if we want to step into this global citizen ship and we want to do it in in not just a spiritual way because a lot of people they don't have that spiritual bent um which i have but i feel that if we step in this in a very gentle way for instance number one we have a global arbitration panel and they those people will not be allowed to earn extra money have investments or have anything beyond what they've been given to be, uh, you know, their pay for the, to being on the global arbitration panel. I don't believe they. we should allow them in any sort of global investments or any sort of financing, period. So they would have to be, somehow be stepped out of that balawak in order to be able to uh, be uncorruptible in that situation, or at least somewhat. The other way, I think, is stepping into a total global citizen ship would be to start it on a small scale like this maybe this panel or countries get together and they say okay we're going to try a global coalition between these six countries and we're going to have limited you know uh like we're going to make you a global citizen you can come into these countries and you can do x but you can only do x for so long and then you got to show that you can provide an income or you are a part of the economy and you are you are creating more stable and robust robust environment instead of breaking it down so maybe in limited capacity we hand out global citizenship cards in a few countries we limit that interaction in some degree and we then step it up and, and, and grow that sort of situation as we roll. Because ultimately, like you say, we're dealing with countries and people that have so much power, wealth, and destructive capability that the world isn't safe if a few radicals uh, decide to go half-cocked and start nuking or, or destroying their own nuclear facilities to get at another country. So it... it it really needs to be tried with kids' gloves, baby steps. But I think it's doable. But you got to get a few countries that are willing to do that, almost like Canada and the U.S. were at one point. You know, hey, citizens could go back and forth uh, readily without too much border interaction. And I believe me, I went through it for years, and I, I, they just wave you through. It's only when you came to the U.S. side they started messing with you. The Canadian side, you could just roll right in, right? And I think right. some of those uh, areas could be looked at where we actually can have more uh, citizen exchange, exchange students on a much greater scale than we have now. We could see if these cultures and these people from different countries can work together in such a way as to make it advantageous. Um, those might be a couple ways to do it. Open borders, just paying for open borders and then trying to force that upon a country uh, is disastrous. We, yeah, well, I think it's really, really dangerous. It's and look dangerous. Look at what's happened so far. You know, I was telling you at the break, my family lives in Austria. They're in their 80s, late 80s. They've been in Austria their whole life, and they've never experienced this. I mean, if you were, like when I was there, the cops came once because I, I, yeah, I was drunk. 
I was banging on somebody's door, woke somebody up because I didn't know where I was. I was lost, and the police came, and they drove me back to my grandmother's, and it shocked everybody. I, 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 for 30 years, 40 years, I, I kept hearing about that. And, oh, my gosh, and you were the I'm still never seen a police officer in our neighborhood. Well, once Merkel decided to, to you know, uh, do what she did in Germany, Austria had a lot, you know, they had their own issues and they were trying to deal with it too. But unfortunately, it caught them off guard. And now the crime, the crime rate from immigrants is to the point where they're finding break-ins, murders, rapes, car break-ins, home break-ins, beat-downs. And it's on a regular occurrence. They're frightened. They're so frightened that they, when I wanted to fly my kids down there and I have two teenage uh, older teenage kids that wanted to go to Europe for the first time and meet my family before the last couple of them died. And they said, no, don't. We love oh, you. We just want to die. We just want to die peacefully or do not come up. It's that bad. We'd, we, we, we would never want you to see Austria like this anymore. It's really that bad. I was shocked. Okay, because they have personal phone calls with me to people I've known my whole life. And they're not liars. They're very, in fact, timid people um, and and have a, a, a strong character and spirituality to them as well. So, you know, when I hear those sorts of things, what's going on? Do I want that here in the United States? Not even on a limited scale for now. I think it needs to be done the right way. This open, again, open borders by Soros. It really is Soros, folks. He's not a myth. Soros is not a myth. That kind of money moving to radic- uh, radicalized countries in order for their own gain, really for his own personal gain, and those of others, Volcker and others of the big money clique, right? That... And I don't want to see that here. I moved here to the United States to get away from all the stupid policies and crime. And uh, it comes back down to the open border situation, how people feel about that. So it is a big issue. You notice it's the main issue today. It truly is. It's not so much the immigrant children. That's just um, a byproduct. It really comes down to open borders. Period. Well, we're gonna we're going and to that, we're gonna uh, discuss a little bit more about the, solving that problem. Right. Fantastic. <laughs> I hope we have enough time. Oh, we got a little <laughs> well, while. The thing is, whatever we're going to do, we can't do it in a uh, we we can't solve the problem of borders without solving more or less some of the aspects of the global economic problem. Right. We Free believe that the border solution recommendations coexist with much larger changes in the concept of global commerce. Right. Accordingly, we suggest the development of cooperative trade zones throughout the world where countries agree to proportionally develop and manufacture products, developing depending on the resources, talent, and interests of different countries. As in the past, categories of trade, like, for instance, building and manufacturing cars, would not be exclusively tied to one country, but factors of proposed demand and capacity to manufacture would configure into the creation of these zones with meticulous respect to the various countries and resources around the world. The result would be a kind of global economic democracy, required the kind of attention, willingness to compromise forward thinking, concern for both parties' own business, 
and, and country, as well as those participating in the entire planetary economy. In other words, we're not looking at competing exactly with each other, but cooperating. Let one country build this, another country I build like that. that. I, I like that idea because ultimately the resources belong to the people of the planet. And, yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. We're not trying to break down the sovereignty. They still have their sovereignty, but they can. But look at what's happening now. German companies are coming here, building cars here, right? Right. I mean, it's happening anyway, but it's not happening in a real cooperative way. It's all messed up. It is these companies, and I think the I think the answer is like more between the the companies and the countries. It's not just like uh, a big broad type of economic planning with some economic god sitting there telling people what to do. It's everybody kind of negotiating for each other's mutual advantage. Well, the, you know, the, cre it, 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 the, the, the scum, let's say, from society has risen to the top into these, into these positions. And, um, you know, politics is so corrupt these days, even in these other countries, to think that they're going to negotiate on behalf of the people. Uh, I haven't right, seen that. Because they just this can't be done. This can't be done from the top down. Right. It actually has to be done from the bottom Bingo. up. Bingo. Right. So right. what you need to do is create a a, follow, a group of people. I mean, a massive, eventually, group of people who really are uh, politically, socially, and maybe even spiritually uh, together. Who can who can who can work this out? Well, right now there are all, there are companies that you know they're practicing conscious business. They right. are trying to do things like that. Right. But there are a very small number of those companies. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I would say cooperative trade zones would not be like free trade zones, which also have been characterized as being lopsided and not free, and often favoring multinational corporations and neglecting the welfare of participating participating nations like us. The concept of free trade zones has always been somewhat deceptive and whether or not, even in its purer form, neglects the kind of customized contextuality of cooperative trade zones. Free trade zones exist in the world of competitive capitalism. Cooperative trade zones seek to ensure profitability, that profitability exists in all the world planetary economic system. The idea would be to create trading opportunities based on truly fair and balanced criteria. This would re require a completely different psychology of commerce, where companies really looked at each other a bit more in the spirit of joint ventures for the sake of mutual prosperity rather than as objects for conquest and destruction. So that's sort of like what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we are talking about um, we, maybe some profit sharing. So if if somebody wins in this area of the country and the other person's been trying real hard, maybe the profit can go sort of both ways. I'm not talking about equal profit sharing, but contextual profit sharing, just so that every main one tries to maintain a certain level of prosperity if they're all acting in goodwill. Also, another part of it, and I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I really do think you have to prevent oligopoly and monopoly. You do. You have to have some kind of antitrust aspect to it. I mean, isn't Bezos worth over $140 billion now? Yeah. I mean, just a few years ago, he was 60, 40, then 80, 120, 144 billion. I mean, whoa. 
and to to be able to control economies to the point you the government has to deal with you in a radical way uh or give you favors or say you don't have to pay tax or sales or 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 you don't have to uh um, you know, abide by various rules that others have to abide by because you're so large. Yeah, that stinks. Um, but I think it's led to massive poverty, government corruption, and reduction of right. intellectual freedom to right. create things that work rather than to make. Well, why don't we just turn these big companies like you know these major um, uh, conglomerates? Uh, hey, this is a radical idea. I don't know if it'll work, but throwing it out there, why don't they at a certain point say, okay, this, you know, a lot, this, a lot of this wealth has to be handed off to the individual shareholders and not the administrative staffs and the CEOs and so on. More and more of it has to go to the people at a certain point. Oh, that's point. interesting. Yes. Yeah. When you make a certain and there point. Are, so there are some movements, I believe, in, in, in trying to get shareholders more responsibility. Right. But I don't think that they reach that level that you're talking about. Right. Um, so there's the other part of it. Now we'll get to the borders, finally. <laughs> what I, which would mean that if you had this kind of economy, we're talking about border empowerment communities. And this isn't often in the area where borders geographically exist. But if it's not possible, then in other areas, in other words, um, these communities would exist, usually the borders, but maybe not, because sometimes the borders wouldn't would allow that. Uh, border empowerment communities would be created through an international agency that would, with the agreement of sovereign nations of the world, permit the settlement of refugees in a border empowerment, uh, empowerment community throughout the world, but not necessarily in the adjacent country where refugees are taking are, are, are starting to live. Why can't uh, so, we create an area, an area in each country? Like, look, okay, we're going to donate an area half the size of Washington to this open border policy, not open borders like, you know, we, you know, that's trying to be forced upon us, but a more open situation. With yeah, limits, this of is, course. That's really, yeah, we're talking about an international, an area but that's every country. By, should yeah. maybe do that, relegate a certain area to test it out instead of uh, throwing it on all the people, maybe just a small area and and uh, seeing how it goes from there. Like well, I have to tell you, uh, something really strange happened, you know, uh, about this. Because during this time, you remember the problem with Italy and these, these boats trying to get in there and all the problems with... Uh, those type of immigrants, right? Right. And, and Italy was refusing to let them in. I don't know if they eventually did, but it, it, there was going to be a summit, sort of a, uh, a an EU um, agreement, and Italy refused to do anything unless the European Union, um, you know, agreed to deal with the migrant issue, and they did. Uh, I don't know how good it is. But but one of the aspects of it, and I know we're kind of running out of time, aren't we? Uh, we got a good 20 minutes yet. Okay. So um, let, let's get into that for a second. I thought it was really strange because they actually have done something like this. They have done it in the past, and I think they're going to do it more in the future. In other words, just because a refugee comes into this country 
doesn't mean that they're going to be going into the country they're choosing because the country might not be able to accept them. They'll be going somewhere else. So, um, well, I have an unbefrestetit visa. It's called a forever visa. Um, my my uh, grandparents and then my mother uh, obtained that for my brother and I. It's it's a forever visa, and I can actually go to Europe, work and live there. I might be one of my brother and I might be one of the last two to obtain one of those. Where where did it come from? I mean, from a country or from right from Austria. And uh, they, they okay. actually, in my passport, it says unbefrestetit visa, which is a forever visa. And it allows me, again, to live and work there uh, at any time. And, and, and from what I understand, all of the European Union because of, of their situation. So that, that's been interesting. It, it, was, it took quite some doing for them to achieve that, to actually get that. But they managed to do it. I've never used it, um, but I have it. I think my that's mother- a good that's a good example of it, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, of a, yeah. Of a kind of international visa. Uh, yeah, it's, right. I mean, of a, of a, a international solution. And they that's could probably revoke it at any time if they chose to. If I did something wrong, which I, you know, but yeah. Well, and- let's hear a little bit about the European migrant deal. Why don't we hear N sixty five? Joining me on set is Chris Moore from our International Affairs Desk. Welcome, Chris. Uh, tell us more about the details. What came out of this summit? We got, first of all, uh, there, as you saw, were claims of unity from uh, Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. Uh, it's no secret that there are vastly differing uh, shades of opinion within the EU uh, going on in the background. Enough also uh, in the short term, I guess, to uh, reassure Italy. Obviously, this most recent crisis sparked when uh, Italy's hardline interior minister, Matteo Salvini, started uh, refusing uh, the right to land to uh, various uh, migrant vessels. Having said that, in terms of concrete proposals, it's all still uh, a little bit vague uh, and voluntary. What we do have is this promise to set up uh, asylum processing centres in various parts uh, of the EU. We don't know exactly which countries uh, are going to do that. And as I said, that will uh, be uh, voluntary. Um, what Merkel and uh, Macron uh, want really is a unity across uh, Europe on this. That doesn't really exist. What Macron wants uh, is these so-called uh, disembarkation centres, which would process uh, people outside the EU, sort uh, economic migrants from asylum seekers in countries outside uh, EU territory. That's something which is running into hot water uh, amongst African and uh, North African nations. We were told uh, at this meeting that they're, that's something the EU will continue to work towards. Told also that there'll be uh, a beefed up uh, border police force and more help for Libya, uh, which is going to be something which uh, human rights groups will be looking at very closely. Uh, they've repeatedly expressed uh, their concern uh, in terms of uh, the way people are treated in Libya as they make their way uh, north. Uh, towards the Mediterranean crossing uh, to Italy. Uh, the Italians are say say they have at last not been uh, left alone. This was also about uh, Angela Merkel being able to say to her domestic critics, led by her own hardline interior uh, minister, that Germany wouldn't be left alone. Yes, a lot of these uh, new arrivals uh, come to Italy, but many of them then go on to uh, other countries, primarily perhaps uh, Germany. And this issue of secondary movement is something which uh, Merkel's critics back home wanted to see movement on. Speaking of Merkel, uh, she said uh, this was a make or break moment for the EU. Uh, Did she get what she wanted? 
in the short term, uh, yes, as in she was able to sort of like portray uh, European uh, unity, though, as, as she said herself then, as I've been saying, uh, the details do really remain to be uh, hammered out. It was obviously threatening on one level her, her coalition back home because of the divisions uh, with uh, Horst uh, Seehofer, her, her interior uh, minister. But uh, really, the idea of um, countries increasingly want to do things unilaterally, taking control of their own borders, that's obviously very worrying to Angela Merkel in the way that she sees uh, Europe, the way that she thinks Europe should operate. It's a threat uh, potentially to what she sees as one of the EU's greatest achievements, namely the freedom of movement and uh, the uh, Schengen area. We did hear from Donald Tusk uh, there saying, well, I'm sorry if you find some of these proposals uh, a little bit hard line, but uh, if we don't find agreement on this now, then uh, the real tough guys will take over. And that's an acknowledgement, really, uh, that the effects uh, that the likes of uh, Eastern leaders like Viktor Orban, but also Matteo Salvini, the so-called populists, uh, are having uh, on other Europeans in terms of migration policy. Well, you know, speaking of what he was just discussing, um, this is this is from from the um, the agreement, uh, the EU uh, migrant deal, and, and quote an emergency relocation. This is going back in time. The emergency relocation scheme was set up in 2015 with EU member states committing to relocate people from Greece and Italy to other EU countries. By, 21, by uh, July 21st, 2017, more than 24,000 people had been relocated, 16,774 from Greece and 2,675 from Italy to 24 different participating states. I mean, we could have it too. We could be part of an international, something like this, which is not obviously not impossible because it's being done, we could actually collaborate with Europe and other places to have something like what you were calling about these open areas, sure. uh, what I'm calling the border empowerment community. Like yeah, in limited capacities and then work out the kinks as you roll, sure. Well, I want to, uh, the way that I I sort of see these these communities in a certain way, and I'd like to play an example of a community I'm not trying to use this as, a, as an absolute paradigm, but it's a self-sustainable community for 40 years. And I'm, I'm thinking that if you could get people to go into a community that really train them in different skills, like in a commune where you can do some carpentry, you can do some agriculture, you can do whatever is really needed, fix a car, where people have these crossover skills, that they could actually leave that area, go somewhere else, and now, learn, now they've learned, build their own community, literally build it, like this one at N67 Twin Oaks. It's hard to believe, but 100 people live on this Virginia farm. Twin Oaks is, above all, tranquil. A lot of people come here looking for utopia. Russ McGee says it's not utopia, but he has no regrets about moving here nearly seven years ago. There's a certain commitment to simplicity here. You can't have a lot of uh, travel or other cultural kind of entertainments in your life, uh, but nonetheless, there is a, a great richness uh, and, and connectedness to, to this life. There's a place I know where you and I can go. There is entertainment here, but life is simple. Members post notices on billboards and clipboards instead of Facebook and Twitter. And because they live in buildings that house 10 to 20, 
there's less privacy. But Arthan, a recent member, says that's one of the things he likes about Twin Oaks. And I worked out in the world for 25 years in a career and lived next to somebody for four years and never even knew who they were. Now I live with 90 people. I know them all. It's like living in a little village, an old European village for me. A village where everything is free. Valerie has lived here for 17 years. We get housing, we get health care, we get food, we get clothing. Plus, we get $75 a month for extras, the things the community doesn't provide. New members don't have to donate their assets to the commune. What keeps the community going is work. Basically, the agreement is you work your 42 hours and the community covers all of your costs. Paxis Calta says members can choose their work, and there's lots of it. Pretty much all of the aspects of daily life that we can get away with doing here, we do. We fix our own cars, we build our own buildings, we educate our own kids. Twin Oaks also makes hammocks and tofu. Members can satisfy their 42-hour work requirement at those enterprises. Income from those businesses provides Twin Oaks with cash to purchase consumer goods like automobiles. The community owns 17 cars. Like everything else here, they are shared. And that makes Twin Oaks more environmentally friendly than most American communities. We consume 66% less electricity, uh, 75% less gasoline, 88% less solid waste that goes to the landfill. It comes from this sharing thing. It's a lifestyle that's essentially communist. But most of the members who leave the community become entrepreneurs. Ready? Clear. Member Keenan Dakota. It's ironic that here we have this communal society, and what we do is we are training future capitalists. Take me away, boys, but time is not long. With the community at capacity, there's a waiting list to get into Twin Oaks. Susan Logue, VOA News, Louisa, Virginia. You know, uh, I know, know uh, I want to hear some of your thoughts about this, but I wanted to mention that these, at a certain point, you used to call these things, uh, something like this, communes, right? But uh, now there, there's actually a different name, Intentional Communities, which I think is a very interesting name, because there is something to this that was really great. What do you think? I think it was perfect. I, I, I really, I, I do. I think that might be the ticket. Um, in other words, cooperation among uh, various communities, I think could work. And I, and I think one way to do that, and it might be an odd way, is, is to allocate every country allocates a, a portion of their country, a small piece maybe, as an international zone. Right. Yeah. And yeah, then, that's what we're talking about, basically. Right. And then they can collaborate between those zones and so on within the different countries uh, in their own unique way and, and see how far it progresses. I, I love the idea. Because I, I think if a person comes, I, I, I know there's sort of miracles that happen when you take a, a person who is not educated and you start to give them that opportunity. Oh, yeah, uh, and that, that would go not into just the kind of education you talk about, like uh, academic, but fixing cars or doing carpentry. Right. Most people, middle class people, don't experience anything like that anymore. 
Right. But uh, but if you could train a person on all kinds of levels, you could take these refugees and suddenly get suddenly they're in an advanced curriculum of of being able to sustain themselves and their community. I think it would be very interesting and very important. So not not uh, so uh, not to be focused on the specifics of any one intentional community as border empowerment uh, as, as a border power, excuse me empowerment community would be an area where countries, corporations, and universities would in effect create villages designed to expedition, expeditiously educate refugees in the skills necessary to create and build their own self-reliant communities instead of tent cities. So you have all these tent cities and all this crap all over the world. And I see those people as assets. If they could give them something to do to to make themselves better, uh, and so they're actually creating a profit instead of just taking everything from uh, other people because they have nothing to build on. These zones would function to create resources where countries and corporations could pool existing talent in these zones. So they're here in this empowerment or international zone, and they're being looked at by corporations and by other businesses. And and what, what happens is, okay, so they so one one company will actually install a physics laboratory and, and, and training place and they teach maybe a small number of people how to become, you know, physicists or 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 mechanical engineers. So certain people would be sort of picked out and specially trained. Other people would get a more general training, but also people would be recruited from these groups because these groups would be uh, have a dedicated sort of dedicated skills that would be enhanced on purpose so that companies throughout the world can recruit them. And then they'd have a, a place to go temporarily or permanently. I like it. Yeah. Sort of interesting. Very interesting. What I wanted to say also, <laughs> looking at this idea. Here's some criteria, um, which is another. Th I want to get to one thing pretty quick because it has something to do with what you said before, not, not you know in our in a private conversation. First of all, the economy needs to be bottom up. Without compromising the value of prosperity, it should ensure that all members of whatever social order that are in the game should be given the absolute opportunity to provide for themselves and their family. So that's the opposite of what's going on. Right. To this end, technology should be deployed that it, at its most foundational level that is good for the earth and its population, but not leveraged to profit the few, but to provide clean and expensive energy, for instance, for the many. This is a radical change from the, 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 the kind of technology we use today. The dependency on such vital technology on petroleum leads to continual war the artificial enrichment of certain corporations and individuals. Predatory technology affects almost every facet of human life, food supply, air and water pollution, medical and health solutions, transportation. Now, remember you told me you were talking about how the, uh, how the government should provide jobs for everyone, right? I think that should be always one of the goals of the government, yeah. Did you know, I, I mean, um, I think I can't pronounce your name, but Katia Cortez, the, the woman who, who won the, uh, in New York State, she won the, she oh, won right, the House right. of Representatives. Social position. liberal, 
social democrat okay Okay. but did you know that one of her one of her goals is to have that one of her specific goals um that i didn't know wow yeah good honor one of them is it's called a it's called a federal job guarantee now i'm not saying i agree with all of this but i'm going to read to you what she actually put in her platform a federal jobs guarantee would create a baseline quality for employment that guarantees a $15 wage pegged to inflation, full health care, and paid child and sick leave for all. This proposal would dramatically upgrade the quality of employment in the United States by providing training and experience to workers while bringing much needed public services to our communities in areas such as park service, child care, and environmental conservation. Furthermore, a federal jobs guarantee program would establish a floor for wages and benefits for the nation's workforce. This program would provide a baseline, again, of $15 an hour and guarantee for public workers a basic benefits package, including health care and child care. By investing in our own workforce, we can lift thousands of American families out of poverty. So that's... Um, yeah, interesting lady. Uh, you know, she was... a. She was attacked, uh, and um, you know, before, you know, I, she was attacked as soon as she, you know, when people found out she won, they were, they were truly horrified. Well, did she win? The question is. Remember that the DNC, she won the primary. She right, but the- then the DNC took away the extra votes and spread it across the other two, uh, uh, spread it across the other two candidates, and and tied it up. And now there's going to be some form of a vote off. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think now that could be fake news. It might have been fake news I was reading. I didn't follow up on that. uh, She was against one person, uh, uh, and that person was uh, was fourth in line to be uh, Speaker of the House. Right. Anyway, another part of this, another component is that economic planning would have to be very complex since business functions on different levels municipalities and something like counties and states and provinces and countries on a global scale. Because I think if you're going to do cooperative capitalism, it's going to be, you know, you can imagine all these corporations are sitting down and trying to figure out how to beat everybody else. (laughs) I think it it gets a little more difficult when they're trying not to beat everyone else, but to make sure that everybody else is okay. And, um, it's a totally different approach. It the is, idea was then, that if you then, do that, everything will be fine, and people who who gain, gain a lot of money, it's going to be great. But it doesn't work that way. Well, it's the ownership uh, of these com- companies. You know, you got massive wealth controlled by just a few, and they're, you know, they're out for themselves. Uh, again, it comes back to, you know, the main controllers of these corporations and what their decisions are, and and. And, you know, corporations, these people that head up the corporations, kind of like President Trump heads up the Corporation of America, their duty is to enrich uh, that entity. That's really their duty. They applied for it and they got the job. And now they're proceeding to carry out the terms of that uh, job. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's unfortunate because that's the way it is in corporate uh, business. Uh, How do we change that? I think we have to change it from the bottom up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I want to thank you, Don, for today. Uh, this pleasure. was a- exciting. Uh, the, the both the uh, the part where we do get into a little combativeness <laughs> and uh, the part that we get into a little bit of cooperation. 
I'm sure one of us, both of us will try to win the other person over, but I, <laughs> I don't know what the chances are. Uh, I want to thank your brother also for helping us see the multiple advantages of working with PBS radio. We're trying oh, thank to, you. to learn everything that we can that he's, he's taught us. And then we want to thank Hassan Khan, who's done so much for me in New Galaxy Enterprises. Linda, Mr. Keeler, who calls in. We love you, Lynn. Also has, has been yeah, trying to help us uh, get connections so that we know where the next level of people are that, that would be able to help us. And Andy Miller has done a lot because he's actually helping uh, the first stages of building this infrastructure, you know, the planet. Yeah, yeah, um, they're great. So it's really good. Yeah. So yeah. we're gonna we're gonna say goodbye now, and uh, we'll do the INF two. It's called the INF two extra and M twenty four. A great song for us that leave Leo. Thanks for joining Don Newsom and I on Inalienable and Free Voice of the Coalition. As we go about developing our new organization, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment, we hope you will consider the importance of taking part in the electoral processes of your government and asserting the rights you have to vote for the companies you respect and love by casting your ballot as a shareholder or as a consumer with what you buy. We hope soon to make this possible through a social network responsive to your needs through dialogue about your rights as a citizen but also to be able to effectively act in concert with like-minded colleagues who find representatives of government and business executives will hear your voice and appreciate your message. See you soon.